And it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, Michael Robbins is a poet, though he says that wasn't his first choice. I don't have the musical talent or the voice or the stage presence or the looks to be a rock star, so I became a poet. Well, it uh, must be said that Michael's done pretty well in his fallback career. And uh, rock star or no, he has managed to rock it, endlessly rocking his own kind of music in verse form. Because uh, what Michael does with poetry is musical through and through, as you're going to hear in today's interview. Uh, Michael's first book of poems, uh, Alien vs. Predator, came out in 2012. And bold critics over had them saying all kinds of immoderate things. Like, uh, for instance, uh, here's John Wilson writing in Commonweal. Michael Robbins's Alien vs. Predator has given me a sense of what early readers of The Wasteland must have felt in 1922. And then there was the not normally so excitable Dwight Garner writing in the New York Times. For anyone who is doubtful about the course of American poetry, reading Mr. Robbins's best stuff makes you feel something new is being flogged into existence. Well, Michael has uh, continued to flog new things into existence, and he has gathered a bunch of them in his new book of poetry that's just come out. It's called The Second Sex. We're going to pay a visit to Mr. Robbins's neighborhood today to talk about poetry and music and some other matters of import. So uh, stick around and listen in to our conversation with Michael Robbins. I was reading your uh, your Tumblr, uh, in which you recently said, I think it was fairly recent, um, I am sicker of giving interviews than you are of reading them. Uh, right. The you being your readers. And that's a pretty rare position to be, I think, as an American poet. I doubt that many in history have had so many interviews that they're sick of them. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's true. I think it's just a function of how much attention the first book got. The second book has gotten much less attention, which is both dis- disappointing and sort of a relief. Sophomore slump. Yep. I-, I kind of expected this because there was just such an unusual amount of attention paid for a book of poetry to Alien versus Predator that I thought maybe this book would be more like what it's actually like to publish a book of poetry in America. <laughs> and it has been pretty much. Although today there was a nice review in, in the Winnipeg Free Press. I'm really big in Canada. Are you? <laughs> well, I'm being I'm being funny. But uh, I do have a, a lot of uh, attention um, from Canadians. I don't know why. Maybe I appeal to their sensibilities. To what do you um, credit, though, you know, the smash hit uh, that was your first book, uh, Alien vs. Predator, I mean, you came out of nowhere. I think I found a blurb that said, a young poet out of Topeka, Kansas. Yeah. Uh, though you didn't really grow up in Topeka. No, I, I was only in Topeka for, I think, two, the first two years of my life. But, uh, you know, an unknown. And then suddenly your book is being uh, listed on all the 10 best lists, or a lot of them. People who don't talk about poetry are talking about it. Am I right that Patton Oswalt tweeted one of your poems or parts <laughs> of one of them? He did, yes. He liked the poem where the heavy metal bands replaced Santa's reindeer. That's the thing. I mean, you have lots of uh, super accessible pop culture references. If reading Ezra Pound requires a knowledge of Provencal poetry and the classics and Chinese, yours requires, or maybe it doesn't require it, but it certainly asks for a knowledge of music over the last 40 years of commercial culture in America and beyond right now of politics. I mean, uh, right. I want to take the class that would prepare me to read your poems really well. 
I could, I would like to teach that class, you know, Guns and Roses in late capitalism. Oh, dude, if I were in academia, you would have a job right now. I already have a job, and they and they and uh, <laughs> they might let me teach such a class. I'll check. What is your job aside from poet? Uh, poet is not a job, Robert. I was being kind. <laughs> I mean, I I made more money off my book than probably many poets make, but uh, I was reading a review of Ben Lerner's new novel, and let me just say that if I wanted to make money off this stuff, I'd I'd try to be something other than a poet. <laughs> Uh, but I do teach creative writing at uh, Montclair State University in New Jersey. Okay, so you do have a day job. Good to hear. You can yeah. feed the cat that way at least. I can. Although I'm learning that uh, your salary as an assistant professor sounds nice until you you have New York and New Jersey taxes to deal with. A cut always goes to Chris Christie, doesn't it? Well, you got to keep the bridges open. You're reminding me of a line from one of your poems. Where's the bridge? The one from the uh, Led Zeppelin. Um, oh, the Led Zeppelin. Uh, um, <laughs> I can't remember it either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to find the bridge. That's what he says. From Crunge? Is that what that's from? Uh, yes. And he means the musical bridge, right? He means the musical bridge, yeah. But I made it a literal bridge. I guess a musical bridge is, yeah, the musical bridge is metaphorical, right? Yes. Because it takes you from one part of the song to the other. Right, exactly. But getting back to my question, I mean, I made it clear to listeners who may not know your work that, yeah, it's got a lot of the kind of illusions that would appeal to people who maybe would be turned off by, you know, high-flown literary illusions, but who feel included in your poems because you are referring to stuff that a lot of us are familiar with in everyday life. Yeah, I mean, but I, there are a lot of high-flown literary illusions, too. <laughs> True. You know, I understand what you're what you're saying, but it wasn't a strategy. I was just responding to the things that matter to me in my life, uh, and that that seemed to me to be constitutive of our contemporary moment. You know, um, I don't make a strict distinction between the work that Jay Z has done for my consciousness and the work that Adorno or John Donne have done. There's obvious distinctions. I mean, the, the distinction is, is self-evident, but as far as their role in what, I, in what Kenneth Burke calls equipment for living in my life, I, I don't distinguish between them so much. Popular music and, and consumer culture have created us as much as, uh, as anything. Yeah, I wasn't even suggesting that it was a, a conscious strategy. Oh, I know. I just wanted to forestall that objection on the part of any any other three people who are listening to this. <laughs> um, but what interests me is you've got that element that um, may have contributed to the sort of unexpected success and uh, you know celebratory welcome that you got. But uh, I think your poems are quite challenging, and I know from reading your essays that you are very sophisticated in your relationship to literature to the point where I gotta admit, Michael, right off the bat that I'm a little intimidated by your stuff the way I would be intimidated by picking up Pound's Cantos or something. I feel like I'm not sure I know enough, you know? Am I foolish to feel that way? Well, I mean, not everybody can be a genius, Robert. It's hard. And frankly, you're probably better off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, come on. It's like, I don't think intimidation is a desideratum of writing. I don't think it should be anyway. A lot of it is just a function of how much you've read, right? I mean, I have a PhD in, in literature, and, uh, so I had to read a bunch of stuff. And, um, and I'm interested in, in intellectual culture. 
but uh, I don't set out to intimidate anybody. I mean, you should read uh, some of the things that I have to read as an academic. <laughs> well, yeah, I know, I know. Well, let's have, um, before we go further and, and continue to describe your poems, why don't we just have a specimen of one? Let's, um, if you're okay with it, uh, let's have you read Lose Myself. Okay, Lose Myself. Yeah, I got the bug. Got razzle-dazzle, dazed and refused. I'm with stupid. Step up, chump. I'm okay, Cupid. Main man on the data dump. I'm erotic baggage and cholo spit. I'm the motherfucking the. I invented it. I'm a bucket of Colonel Sanders, Kentucky Fried Panzer man. I'm a bare midriff in a sharkskin suit. I got $27. I'm homing in on your boo. It's all over now, Bobby Sue. Yet tarry a while. Set a spell, big bad Leroy, if you can. It takes three miracles to make a saint, just one mistake to make a man. I don't think I've ever read that out loud before. I mean, I mean in public. Wow. You know, I said I was intimidated. I mean, on one level, I just love the sound of that poem, and I love some of the phrases. I'm especially in love with I'm the motherfucking the. Wallace Stevens, you know. Remind us. The man on the dump, the the very end of it. I, I don't know that, that poem. Oh, it's a great poem. He says, where was it one first heard of the truth, the the? And of course, um, now you can't read that line without thinking of the 80s band. Yeah. Uh, in fact, there were a couple of the thes. I saw another one, an avant-garde group called the the. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Just a pair of guys doing wacky stuff. Um I don't know whatever happened to them. But now that I'm more educated uh, by you, I, I now know that you're referring to Wallace Stevens, and I didn't even realize that. Um, my reading of Stevens, I love him, but I, it's spotty. So I didn't, I didn't actually remember that line. It's interesting that you can't say the, the. Like sometimes people say the. Go pick up the, how does that work when you say the or the? I have to go to the bathroom, the bathroom. You could say either one, but you can't say the, the. You just have to say the, the. It's true. I mean, there are some subtle rules, but I can't explain them for when we tend to use the and the. Um, but I love that line. You know, it's funny. I hear it being read in a Dennis Hopper voice. Which? Uh, the whole poem, really. That would be nice. I wish he were still alive because he was my friend Amber Tamlin's godfather. And I bet I could get him to, to record it. That would be awesome. But he's dead. I think everyone should just always read my poems in Dennis Hopper's voice. That would be nice. Um, why twenty-seven dollars? Uh, I don't. I don't know why I picked twenty-seven. Um, I was thinking about that line. It just seemed like a funny thing to, to brag about. <laughs> you know, I got twenty-seven dollars, man. What do you? What do you? Who do you think you are, punk? <laughs> um. Most of your poems, I think, have a persona, have a person. There's usually a, yes. a first person. There's an I. Yeah, if, if I were the I in my poems, I would deserve to be uh, tarred and feathered. I think you would be probably a big star because you had the ego for it. Uh, I mean, you, the, the persona. In real life, I'm very modest, Robert. I'm sort of a, uh, a very self-deprecating person. Well, we'll find out in this interview as time goes mm -hmm. on. But uh, this guy, a lot of people probably do take him to be, uh, you know, some some aspect of yourself. I don't know if that's fair, but he's a chess pounder. He's yeah. he's a masher up of all kinds of received uh, language and received imagery. Sure. 
Um, he's channeling all kinds of things. How did he appear to you? I mean, how does he uh, embody himself for you? Uh, I think he, he has a lot. There's a lot of um, rap braggadocio in him. Yeah. You know, I, I started listening to rap in 1988, a little bit later than probably I should have, but uh, Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back by Public Enemy. And that was like a sort of Damascene uh, record for me. Everything just came together. I had been listening to punk, hardcore, and uh, bands like the Butthole Surfers, Big Black. And I still love that, but Nation of Millions was just this watershed, and I got into... Oh, the Beasties, I guess, had been... had just released License to Ill a couple of years before that. Uh, I got back into Run DMC. I think Eric B. and Rakim's uh, Paid in Full came out the same year as Takes a Nation of Millions. And I just started listening to a lot of rap. And someone said, I can't remember if it was Sasha or maybe Robert Criscow. I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know, there's no sound on earth like a pissed off Chuck D. <laughs> That's Sasha Freer Jones you mentioned there. Uh, music yeah, critic Sasha Freer Jones. Pal of yours, I guess, but music critic uh, for The New Yorker. Is he still? He still is, right? Yeah, he writes for The New Yorker still. Yeah, we're we're like... Um, we saw that we saw a Swans show this summer. It was very loud. <laughs> I uh, emailed you before uh, this interview and asked you what you've been listening to lately. And uh, among other things, um, you've been listening to a new release by Big Crit, some yeah. Southern rapper Catalactica. Catalac, lac, 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 lac. Yeah, it's a it's a great record. Why don't we have a little musical interlude? Play a little bit of the title song. Let's do it. Crit uh, with Catalactica, title song from his new album. You write music criticism. Uh, music is a big part of your. Um, it's it's not just a big part of the references in your poems, but it you know it kind of informs the attitude. It kind of informs the rhythm, um, uh, the mentality of the poems in in all kinds of ways. Tell us about your reaction to to the song we just played, though. Uh, I love his. I just love his flow on this song. You know, when he says, um, Cadillac pimped out fishbowl true vogues, just that there's something about uh, vowels, the way that the, the way that the really best rappers right now use vowels that that just kills me. Um, I think it was a review of Alien versus Predator in the New York Times book review that said that 
when I rhyme Parkinson's and Arkansas, I sound like Jay-Z. Uh-huh. And that was the best compliment I could have received. Because they're really, you know, a, a lot of these guys are thinking real hard about, about uh, rhyme. And their rhymes, when you listen to them, on the, or when you read them on the page, or listen to them spoken, aren't perfect rhymes a lot of the time. But the way that Big Crit says, fishbowl, true vogues, those O's, that just, uh, or, or, you know, later he, later he rhymes loot, loot and roof, uh, hook and dyke. And it's just real smart. It's very smart. It's, it, 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 Ghostface does this a lot too. And, uh, obviously Jay-Z, um, at least when he's on, is amazing at it. And I just am interested, you know, all I ever wanted to be was a warlock of syllables, <laughs> even when I was a kid. I mean, the way that I thought about it was I would be a rock star, you know. I don't have the musical talent or the voice or the stage presence or the looks uh, or the fashion sense to be a rock star. So I became a poet. You know, it's funny because when I listen to rap, I sometimes think, oh, man, it's just they're just going for the easy you know, convenient, ready-to-hand, semi-rhyme. You know, it's like, oh, they're just pushing it forward. It's all about momentum. It wasn't carefully chosen. See, this is just me, okay? Uh, I mean, I admit that it's... Well, I mean, some of them are like that. Yeah. But, you know, have you heard Young Thug's uh, mixtape, uh, Black Portland? No, I haven't. All right, you got to check that out. Okay. He's got this uh, track called Danny Glover that is just amazing. And the lyrics, yeah, that's a song that I love. Uh We'll see if we can uh, maybe even squeeze it in uh, in the broadcast. Yeah. Um, but it's very interesting to hear that what was maybe one of your first relationships or strong identifications with with verse. Am I right? Is 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 then, as you say, a warlock of syllables, a kind of mix master of of sound and beat. Yeah. As opposed to metaphorical expression and all of that stuff. I mean, right. the other side of poetry. Yeah, let me just say real quick, I just looked up the lyrics to Danny Glover. I, I wanted to find this. The rhyme at the, the the last verse ends on a series of rhymes. Attic, average, static, mathematics, pattern. Eminem has on this one uh, early raucous track. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm slim. The Shady is really a fake alias to save me with in case I get chased by space aliens. <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. I don't, I mean, poetry for me has always been a kind of magic um, uh, produced by sound, like a, like a spell, an incantation. And yeah, metaphorical expression, self-expression, all of these things, of course they're components of poetry. I mean, Yeats or Rethke can bring me to tears but it's principally an effect of the of the sonics, um, the metaphor and the and the the self assertion wouldn't matter without the sonics, or they wouldn't be as strong without the sonics. There's a kind of um, I tell my students this anecdote. Uh, I think John Ciardi wrote about this, where W. H. Auden was once asked what he would say to a young person who said to him, "Hey, I want to be a poet," and he said. I would ask him why he wants to be a poet. And if he says, well, I got a lot of important stuff I want to express, he would suggest maybe he go into a different line of work. But if he said, I just like to play around with syllables, he might say, well, 
you know, you might have some promise. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's interesting to hear you say that. Um, because uh, having read some of your criticism, which I, by the way, uh, I'm going to throw away any pretense of objectivity here uh, or distance, I really like. You had an essay on oh, thank you. on Dylan Thomas, in which you expressed, you know, some um, uh, different feelings about him at different parts of, in different parts of your life, and I really uh, it really um, resonated for me because the same thing happened to me. First, kind of dumbstruck and awestruck by his sound and the unexpected use of words and the seeming numinous power, you know, in some of the combinations. And then yeah. I thought later as I became more jaded, I guess, uh, oh, this is glib bullshit. Then, you know, rediscovering him a little bit and saying, no, these, you know, what he does with the words, even if he didn't have a purpose, is right. itself an extraordinary accomplishment. Um, but you've been up and down that, that scale yourself in your relationship. Yeah. Re, re, I mean, you know, he's got, as I said in the piece, he's, there's a lot of stuff in Thomas that is, uh, the kind of thing you'd expect unicorns to write. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's true. He's just, there are just times when you're just like, this is just, this is just goopy. Like, what is this? What is this goop? But he's so you can't hate Thomas entirely because his his images and and just his weird way with syllables is so wonderful. When he says things like uh, the whole of the moon, I could love and leave, or and one light's language in the book of trees, or uh, where maggots have their X. Yes, it's just so weird and 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 um, compelling. You know, he's like Hart Crane in a way. They both could be smeared with uh, sentiment and... Um, I mean, with Hart Crane, it would almost... I mean, I had the same relationship with him. It's funny you mention it. The same thing. Fell in love with him when I was young. One of the first poets, actually. And then thought, no, this is goopy. It's sentimental. It's dan... Is there a word? Dandiacal? It's dandyistic. It's... Yeah. It's strutting and pretty and flowery and... But then I come back and, oh, no, there's some just gorgeous imagery, gorgeous combinations. Can't resist, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Both of them overreach. They have these elaborate and ornamental visions that end up collapsing under their own weight of Mm -hmm. pretense. Mm -hmm. But the language at times is just they have such a strong grip on it, such a stranglehold on it that you just can't resist them entirely. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, every time I walk by uh, Wall Street, mm. you know, I think of I think of Crane saying, um, "Down wall from girder into street, noon leaks a rip tooth of the skies acetylene," and I'm just like, it's "Incredible, yeah!" From the bridge, yeah, the uh, the proem, it's just amazing. Till elevators drop us from our days, yeah. Chill from his rippling rest. It's like a spell, you know. It is. I mean, I think that there's a kind of narcotic quality to the best poetry to the poetry that really speaks to me anyway that's similar to that of rap for instance and yeah there are all sorts of differences yada yada but you're you're deeply um suspicious of to put it mildly too much prettiness too much facile lyricism do i dare bring up the the robert haas uh, piece he wrote um a, a harsh appraisal of some of Robert Haas's poetry, though you grant yeah. him you grant him a lot of having a lot of skill and producing some really good stuff as well. 
but uh, he he may typify. Uh, that's probably not fair to him. I don't want to say he typifies anything, but there's a tendency in poetry to dwell on poetic subjects, which often have to do with nature and have to do with certain kinds of serious uh, concerns and attitudes, and maybe not get down into the the stuff of our shabby everyday existence in a certain way. I don't know if I'm putting it right, but but you were um, a little annoyed with him. So on the one hand, you're quite vulnerable to that that word sorcery. On the other hand, you resist, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not... I mean, obviously, there are people like Swinburne, whom I like, who are... Um, who can be simply pretty and who can be simply dazzling without any, you know, it's, it's all light and no, and no fire. Uh, and there's a superficial attractiveness that is, is ultimately resistible. But what bothers me about Hass is not so much the word smithery as the sort of and, you know, Hass is just an example. I mean, I could name any number of, of poets. And, and as you say, I, I admire quite a bit of what's in Hass. But it's, it's, it's the sort of dripping piety and the, the capital W wisdom of the poetry that turns me off. And the sort of factory-produced lyric epiphany. At the uh, end. <laughs> yeah, at the end of the poem, you, you, know, you know, as James Wright put it, you, you know, you could, you could break into blossom something like that or his best line i have wasted my life <laughs> yeah I, I like that one i mean that's nice right yeah, cuz yeah. that's like cuz the great thing about that poem uh what is it it's lying in a hammock and duffy's farm in pine island minnesota or something like that i can't remember what it's called uh the great thing about that is that he's he's wasted his life cuz he hasn't spent it lying in a hammock you know <laughs> like attending to these things and of course, he's revising Rilke, whose whose own epiphany is there's a there's a much more noble and awesome catalyst for his epiphany, which is the 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 ancient bust of Apollo, you know, the torso of Apollo, and and James Wright deflates that grandiosity, uh, and I, I, yeah, that, and that's why I like that. I mean, I think that what poetry does not need to be doing in in the present is. Um, is inflating itself to grandiosity. Uh, I think that's exactly the wrong tack for the art to be taking at a moment of history of such, um, you know, tabescence and very dangerous um, circumstance. So the opposite of epiphany is what? Uh, well, I mean, you could, there could be like a negative epiphany. Mm. Um, what would the opposite of epiphany be? There has to be some kind of break, I think. I just think that the the break, the the epiphanic break that constitutes a kind of uh, realization of deep harmony is is what I sort of think has been overdone. An epiphany, uh, an epiphany of tabescence could be powerful, you know. And, and part of the whole epiphany thing is that the kind of conventional poem you're talking about offers an escape. Right. Um, right. And yours kind of don't. Um, right. Well, I hope not. <laughs> they bring you right back to where you started in many ways. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like it's like the way that someone like Rambeau or Whitman will be transcendent, but in in a way that is not uh, false and is not it, it doesn't sort of appeal to some kind of 
facile uh, mediating principle. Let's hear another of your poems. Um, and uh, I have a few that I could suggest, or, or maybe you have one you'd like to pick. Uh, you, you suggest them. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't want to. Okay, cool. Let's go with one whose very title alludes to a poet we were talking about earlier, Sunday Morning. Okay. It also alludes to Lou Reed. It's supposed to be a Wallace Stevens and Lou Reed reference, yes? Okay. This is a very long poem. Are you sure you want to hear this? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Sunday morning. Must you flush the toilet while I'm in the shower? That's a metaphor. It means one system, contrary aims. Let us say that I have come from beyond the lime fields and ironworks of mortal men. Would you flush the toilet then? It's a yes or no question. Sometimes I think you're in a coma, for there is no pupillary response when I shine a penlight in your eyes. Still speaking metaphorically. We're all adults here, except for the children. We all have some place we'd rather be. Once, not many winters ago, a man could record his favorite show on magnetic tape and plastic casing and enjoy it at his leisure. Or so I imagine it, living alone with the cat, my amanuensis and all that. Visitors tell her that she's fat. Anthony comes around to play, burning airlines give you so much more, on my brand new Yamaha. I read him what I wrote that day. I step from the capsule out onto the surface of my apartment. From here the earth looks like the set of the Verizon halftime report. I make the beast with no backs. Someday a real rain will come and wash all the scum off my sheets. I support the unborn child's right to be spared the ghastly sight of this brightly burning world, this swiftly tilting dumpster. All new speedways boogie and misty mountains hop. The telephone's been cut off. I'm waiting for the clocks to stop. If you love something, set it free. That's stupid. Keep it close. If I've killed one man, I've killed most. I'm having a feelings attack out of the blue, into the black sight, the multi-sided mudslide. I'm just trying to find the bridge. I Skype with Rose. The heart knows what it knows. Rose says, go put a shirt on. All my friends are Scorpios. I live alone with the cat. It's been a long time. Been a long, lonely, 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 lonely time. Hmm. <laughs> Two Led Zeppelin lines, at least, in that one. Yeah, there's a lot more Led Zeppelin in this book. The first book had a lot of Guns N' Roses. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Um, why don't we just start with that opening reference to both Lee Reed and, and Wallace Stevens? Uh, yeah, I mean, Sunday morning, you know, uh, the Stevens poem, Complacencies of the Penoir, I mean, she's sort of musing on, on how she, the, the, the speaker is sort of musing on the pleasures of not having to go to church. And she starts dreaming about what he calls the, the old catastrophe in silent Palestine, dominion of the blood and sepulcher. Stevens is a poet in many ways who's opposed to, he has a kind of Nietzschean view of Christianity. Um, divinity must live within herself, he says. And it's just about where do we find contentment? 
Um, what is it that this is, this, um, this moment, this esse, this being, you know, that, that we're all caught in, that we're thrown into? And my poem is not a response to that, but it, it was written in a kind of similar... It's, it's, it's the most autobiographical, and the poem whose eye is most nearly identical with, with me. It was prompted by similar questions, although in a, in a much less exalted register. And then, of course, Lou Reed's um, Sunday Morning is uh, one of his most beautiful songs and is a song that I first heard as a teenager. You know, it's just the wasted years so close behind. Watch out the world's behind you. Both of them have feelings to which I was uh, responding at the time. I mean, I'm over 40, and there's a certain bitter, sweet... Uh, melancholy that comes with turning 40 if you're a <clears throat> person <laughs> you know <laughs> the character in this t- did seem quite different from the one we heard earlier uh very little bragging uh definitely some introspection and yeah. a little commiseration um you do live alone with the cat is that true i do she is, where is she? She's asleep in a box at the moment. Perdita. Yep. She's often asleep in a box. Perdita. Perdita. She's the bestest. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the Christopher Smart line about moving. Jeffrey. Jeffrey about the moving more than any other quadruped or whatever it is. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great, uh, the cat Jeffrey. Uh, yeah, he does, uh, he, he says something about how, for he does roll upon it. For he does. Oh, what is it? I can't remember it either. He rolls upon his smell or something. I can't remember either. It's long since I've read that. But yeah, great cat poem. But um, the Wallace Stevens poem ends with this, I think, on this extremely uncertain note. Um, downward to darkness. Downward ex- to darkness. Um, on extended wings. On extended wings. Yeah, it's a beautiful line. Um, yeah, and oh yeah, that's right. Uh, in the isolation of the sky at evening, casual flocks of pigeons make ambiguous undulations as they sink downward to darkness on extended wings. Uh, the ambiguity, the isolation, the sinking, and yet the wings are extended. Mm-hmm. It's a very Stevensian moment, you know. In in Nose Toward Supreme Fiction, he says, um, it is possible, possible, possible. It must be possible. It must be that in time, the real will from its crude compoundings come. And uh, I, I don't know if I have that exactly right, but that that sort of uncertainty, you know, it seems so insistent, and yet all he's insisting upon is the possibility. It is possible, 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 not the certainty. And he says it must be that the real will in time from its crude compoundings come, but after all of those statements of, of, of mere, mere possibility, not even probability, it has something less than the force of a, of a conviction. Mm. I would love to talk a little bit about religion and faith. You've written some powerful essays, I think, on, uh, they were book reviews, but uh, where you took on that group that is called the New Atheists. And you've also written a little bit about your own background growing up in right, Colorado Springs. I, I went to high school in Colorado Springs, yes, and junior high. 
But being a church-going kid, is that right? Well, only in a weird sense. My, my dad is a, an atheist, but it's strange how this occurred. My stepmother had a daughter, and her, that her custody agreement required her to take her daughter to, to church on Sunday, to a Lutheran church, which was her father's, my stepsister's father's faith. Uh, my stepmother and my dad didn't go. They, it was just required that they drive her to and from church. Um, so they would take her to church, and then they'd pick her up after church. And around the same time, my, my mother had become, uh, which she remains to this day, a sort of born-again Christian whose understanding of Christianity and whose um, conclusions about it differ greatly from my own. Sorry, Mom. She has a sort of fundamentalist outlook, although she would probably deny that. And I started going to church. I don't remember. I was like, you know, seven years old or eight. I can't remember why I started going to church exactly, but I started accompanying my stepsister to church and went to Sunday school and was confirmed in the Lutheran church um, when I was a youngster. And then just sort of, you know, got involved in punk and 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 being a hoodlum and stuff in, in, uh, in junior high and just stopped going and had sort of left it all behind at least in a formal way. And it wasn't until much later that I came back to the faith in a, and again, a very idiosyncratic way, probably. Tell me about that. It's a weird, you know, it's a weird, I, people ask me if I had a religious upbringing and I don't really know what to say because my dad is a sort of rationalist whose rationalism is comforting in the conventional way, you know, the way that educated people are in this country anyway, less likely to be devout, I suppose, if not more likely to be atheists, at least less likely to have any sense of certainty about religious truth. Uh, so it was weird. And I remember being, you know, Colorado is extremely, well, it's a fundamental stronghold in many respects. There's a lot of evangelicals. I know people who will point out that not evangelicals are fundamentalist, but there is a great evangelical population and a good number of them are fundamentalists. And I was you know, I got in trouble in elementary school for drawing a picture of Satan, I remember, and I couldn't understand why the teacher was upset. Like, she wouldn't put my picture up with the other kids, and I was, obviously, I took umbrage at that because it was a damn good picture of a sort of normal-looking devil with a red cape, and the picture, <laughs> it was probably more learned from uh, from Casper the Friendly Ghost comics. Uh, what was the name of the little devil there? I can't remember. Yeah. But I was probably in second, I think I was in second grade, so I don't know how old I would have been. But, but at that time, I, I was astonished that there should be any question of belief in, in an actual devil. You know, I, I asked her why she wasn't putting it up, and I was upset. And she said, well, it might upset some of the other kids. And I was like, what are you talking about? It, it was as if I had tried to put a picture of Darth Vader on the wall, and she was, she was telling me that it would upset some of the other kids because some people believed in Darth Vader, you know. <laughs> I was astonished, and I told my dad about it, and he said, yeah, well, you know, it's true. Some people think all that that, that nonsense is real. So that was a lesson for me. And then later, well, I remember around the same time probably having a babysitter after school. We went to a sort of daycare that this woman had in her home, and she had some religious uh, quote on the refrigerator, and um, she caught me reading it, and she said, 
it, it was some homily about watching what you do or the devil uh, will take advantage or something about Satan. And I said, she caught me reading it and asked me about it. And I said, um, I said, well, I mean, I don't believe in Satan. And she said, he believes in you, which is a pretty <laughs> fucked up thing to say to a child. And I told my dad about that, and that was the last time we went to that uh, daycare, and she got an earful from him. Uh, and it's funny to me that, it, that that these stories involve Satan, you know, who has become later uh, someone who uh, I write about because of heavy metal. But uh, that was sort of my, my sense of things, was like, whoa, some people believe weird shit. You know, I didn't know that. So in a way, I didn't really have a religious upbringing. I had a very a-religious upbringing, and later became sort of nominally religious, but it was always very strange. I mean, I always, you know, Romans 10.9 says, and, and, and the evangelicals love to quote this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's like the, you know, for many of them, that's, that's Paul preaching to the Romans. That is the criterion for uh, salvation. Mm -hmm. uh, and it always seemed strange to me because I don't fucking know. Even then, I would be like, well, what if I don't really believe? You know, <laughs> how do I, what does it mean to believe? How do I know if I believe? And I would worry about it. And then later in junior high, I would talk to my pastor about the Indians. You know, well, what, the, the Indians didn't get a chance to know Jesus. Are they going to go to hell? You know, so already I had a, I, I had a pretty uh, resistant attitude toward toward the literalism that characterizes much of evangelical and fundamentalist culture in this country. So, so I don't know. I mean, it, it, was very, it was a very idiosyncratic religious upbringing at any, at any rate. But you today, where, where do you sit with it all now? Oh, I don't, I don't like to talk about that. My faith is personal and confused, as, as I think anyone, any intellectually honest person's faith is. You know, sometimes I get in these discussions with people and it, and it comes down to questions about what I really believe. Do you really believe X? Do you really believe Y? I don't know if that's the way to go about thinking about it, you know. Um, that's not what religion is for me. It's, it's not as creedal as it is for a lot of people. We'll steer clear of the stuff that you'd rather not talk about. Um, but we'll talk about something you, you've written, though, in, um, in contending with, again, the the kind of modern version, contemporary version of atheism that we hear a lot mm. about, uh, a strict rationalism or naturalism or materialism, whatever you want to call it, scientism. Yeah. Uh, everybody knows the people, probably the, the most famous ones we're referring to, Richard Dawkins above all, perhaps, but also Christopher Hitchens in his day. And, uh, oh, I think uh, Jerry- Daniel Co Dennett. Daniel Dennett. Jerry Coyne, yeah. Jerry Coyne, the evolutionary biologist. Um, yes. You uh, you did a, a review. Um, was this in Slate of David Bentley Hart's book, The Experience of God? There were a couple others for Slate. That one was for Commonweal. Oh, right, right. And you wrote, but while I agree with Hart that naturalism appears incoherent, we, mm -hmm. sh we should probably just leave out the but, because I'm not going to go into the exception uh, or the difference. I'm interested right. in just this moment where you say, I agree with Hart that naturalism appears incoherent. Its incoherence is the external warrant for my belief in God. Yeah, I should clarify that by that I don't mean that I accept a God of the gaps argument where, you know, there's stuff that we don't understand and uh, God must be the explanation for it. That's a very weak argument that no, no theology has, um, no respectable theology has ever stood upon. 
What I mean is that naturalism as such, the, the, the thesis that the natural is all is a closed system unto itself, uh, has never made sense to me in a philosophical sense. I've always been extraordinarily captivated by, not always, but since I read them in college, by, by Heidegger's questions about being and overwhelmed by a sort of marveling wonder that there is anything rather than nothing, you know. So when I say naturalism is incoherent, I don't mean that it's incomplete by any means, although of course it is. I mean that it is that it simply doesn't stand as a logical system. I mean, to say that the natural world is closed, is a closed system, that, that the natural sciences explain everything that there is, seems just seems to me to be a, a rather shoddy uh, and frankly lazy way of thinking about, uh, about the wonder that is being. And that, that empiricism offers access to all there is to know? Right. I mean, empiricism obviously is an extraordinarily useful and productive doctrine, and it offers access to that which is empirical, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I just this is just tautological, and I'm amazed that that people argue about it. But but it 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 just is true that you know uh, Jerry Coyne likes to ask where the evidence is for God, and as Stanley Hauerwas says, if you could provide that sort of evidence, then then the evidence would be that the God that Christians worship doesn't exist, <laughs> because the God that Christians and Hindus and uh, Muslims and Jews worship isn't the kind of God for whom there could be empirical evidence. It's an absurd category mistake. And people tell them this all the time, the new atheists, you know, and they just can't get it through their heads. They have this idea that either God is a piece of the physical furniture of the universe or he doesn't exist. Either God can be shown to exist the way a quasar can or the way quantum fluctuation can or there's no reason to believe in him at all. And it just confuses entirely different realms of thinking. Obviously, science deals with... This is my cat interrupting the uh, interview. (laughs) Um, Obviously, science is very good for investigating that which is scientifically investigatable. (laughs) I did an interview um, years ago with uh, Rick Moody. Uh Do you know him by any chance? Personally, no. He attacked me uh, in salon once um, because of a. Uh, he he hates Taylor Swift, so he is my enemy. Oh! And he oh. mentioned me as an example of thoughtless Taylor worship. Swiftianism. Um, we, yeah. We, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But uh, I did an interview with Rick years ago, uh, after he had written a um, an essay in the Believer, where he mm. talked about how uncomfortable it was to be. Kind of a you know a modern hip, uh, he wouldn't have used that word, but intellectual, um, accepted in uh, cutting edge circles, but to also admit that he was a Christian, yeah. uh, and how many people were sort of appalled by that, and how how difficult it was for them to accept that a guy like him could also be a Christian. Uh, I think a, an Episcopalian in his case. Yeah, I'm an Episcopalian, basically. Mm-hmm. I was I was baptized Episcopalian, and when I go to church, I go to the Episcopal Church, mm-hmm. although I don't go to church as often as I should, largely because it's only held on Sundays. <laughs> but it was it was kind of poignant, uh, I think, in a way, to 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 see how hard it is these days for people to accept that one could be smart, educated, rational, 
uh, and uh, by no means regressive, fundamentalist, literalist, whatever, and still have an element of uh, religion or faith in their life, you know? You know, you see this a lot, you know. Uh, I remember I was having dinner with someone and, you know, a fellow academic, and she had graduated from Cornell. And there's, there's this sense that religion is just something exuvial that we've sloughed off, you know, that it's, it's something that children, the childhood of the, of the race. And it can prove, therefore, quite um, vociferous when you admit to someone that you are religious, whether a Christian or whatever. Um, and I was having dinner with, with her, and I mentioned, I was reading Terry Eagleton's book, uh, Reason, Faith, and Revolution, and she was like, she asked what it was about, and I was telling her that it's a sort of uh, repost to the new atheists, and she's and she somehow didn't realize that he was a Catholic. And I said, well, you know, uh, uh, Eagleton is a Christian; he's he's Catholic. And she had read Eagleton's literary theory and was used to thinking of him as an intellectual. How could he also be a Christian? And she said, I mean, does he believe that gays are going to hell and all that kind of stuff? And you know, this is the sort of reaction that I've come to expect from convinced secularists, like this idea that if one is a Christian, therefore one believes idiotic shit. <laughs> I mean, it was a comical moment, you know. I mean, it, it wasn't like I got in a heated argument with her. And this was in Mississippi, so living in Mississippi, I, I can understand how one gets such a weirdly um, stereotyped view of what it means to have any kind of faith. But you know, the number of times I've had to say that I don't believe in hell, as I actually don't, or that, you know, I don't, I don't believe in that, that Adam and Eve were real people, you know, <laughs> that I've had to explain what the word mythology means, and talk about the vast intellectual tradition that the major monotheisms have produced, uh, and and the, the great many r religious people I know who don't think that homosexuality is a sin. I mean, it just gets tiring after a while. Mm. Let's uh, turn a corner then, and uh, you mentioned Taylor Swift. I actually had this idea of um, playing— Another Christian. Oh, really? I didn't even know that. Um, <laughs> I think so. I don't know. Uh, but I was thinking about uh, a, a poem of yours called Country Music. Yeah. And I thought, if it's okay with you— that uh, before having you read it, I might play a version in song that an admirer or friend of yours created. Yeah, Shannon, Shannon McArdle. She's a friend, and she's also was um, in one of my favorite bands, which is now broken up, uh, the Mendoza Line. It's kind of amazing that Shannon would end up recording my song since I was such a big fan of hers. We just discovered through her brother, who's a fan of mine, that she was a fan of mine because I tweeted about the Mendoza line, and he said, uh, "You know, as it happens, my sister is is was in the Mendoza line, and she's a big fan of yours." And it was just really um, serendipitous. And yeah, sure, she, that's a great song. I mean, the lyrics are 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 great, but <laughs> her 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 arrangement is just beautiful. Well, let's uh, let's listen to it. Um, so she's taken your poem, country music, which is in your new collection, The Second Sex, and uh, she's set it to music, as we said. God bless the midnight bus depot The bus to guitar case God bless diazepam Still a toy grace God keep 
Christ erase the name from all the files in the county's Bit my leg the night I left the state. Lord, won't you let his vaccines be up to date? West Point to the south of me, Memphis to the north, in between is Stack lightning, Jesus Christ, whatever your name is. Bless my fingers on these strings, I'll make us both famous. How about that, the new moon, same as it ever was. You must have been So that was the uh, songwriter Shannon McCardle with a tune called Country Music. The tune by her, the lyrics by my guest today on the show, the poet Michael Robbins. Um, Michael, having heard uh, Shannon's version of your words set to music, let's, let's just hear you read that poem. Country Music. God bless the midnight bus depot, the busted guitar case. God bless diazepam, its dilatory grace. God keep Carl Perkins warm and Jesus Christ erase my name from all the files in the county's database. The dog that bit my leg the night I left the state. Lord, won't you let his vaccines be up to date? 
West Point to the south of me, Memphis to the north. In between is planted with pinwheels for the fourth. Smokestack lightning, Jesus Christ, whatever your name is. Bless my fingers on these strings, I'll make us both famous. How about that, the new moon, same as it ever was. You must have been high as a kite when you created us. So hurry, hurry, step right up, there's something you should see. The sun shines on the bus depot like a coat of Creole pink. God keep the world this clean and bright and easy to believe in. And let me catch my bus all right, and then we'll call it even. Uh, yeah, packed with illusions, of course, um, as all your pieces are. I actually looked at a map, like where would you be if you were uh, north of West Point and south of Memphis? Mm -hmm. You might be in Tupelo. Yep, Mississippi. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's funny, though. Um, for me, and I'd like to hear your, your reaction to hearing it um, as a song. For me to hear it as a song, it, it worked. You know, it totally worked. I don't know if you were thinking of anything melodic when you were... Oh, yeah. Were you? When Jason Isbell uh, read it, uh, another of my favorite songwriters, he said uh, that it just sounded like it could be a, uh, lyrics to a country song, which was, for me, the, the greatest compliment uh, I could receive, because I had intended it to be both a, a, a poem, but I had, I had intended it to work as a song. I mean, I... I the rhymes are much more basic in this in this song than a lot of my rhymes. You know, I wrote the rhythm as as if it, it were country lyrics, you know. And I hoped that someone might record it, to be honest. And uh, when Shannon suggested it, I was very, very flattered and pleased. And it, it definitely has the feel of country lyrics, you know. It has that that wit. It has those contradictions handled in kind of a, okay, uh, let's get on with it kind of way, you know? Yeah. Um, that last uh, stanza, you know, let me catch my bus all right, and then we'll call it even. Just right. has that kind of feel, you know, like a Hank Williams line or something. Uh, tell me about you and country music, because you admire a lot of it, right? Oh, yeah. I love country music. I can't remember who I had been listening to when I wrote this. I think Casey Musgraves' album had just come out. And I remember I was listening to that a lot. You know, I mean, I love stuff like, I love Toby Keith. I love Montgomery Gentry. I love Brad Paisley and Miranda Lambert. Um, and all of them have a sort of sharpness as, uh, as songwriters that has a lot to do with humor and world weariness. Yeah. You know, a kind of like, uh, a kind of, as you say, a kind of, a kind of resignation that this is the way things are. You better deal with it, you know. And uh, it might be changing now, but I, I know that for a long time there's been a sort of strange prejudice against country on the part of, uh, you know, urban, uh, intellectual, more affluent types, you know, the type of people that, that we know, as though there were something more authentic about, about uh, the arcade fire. Or the cloud nothings, you know, um, <laughs> or hip hop, or or rap. Yeah, yeah. there's a kind of uh, what just seems obviously a, a, a class bias to me uh, against country music. And it's funny since country music has, for at least a uh, fifteen years, channeled rock and roll so heavily. 
you know, the music critic Chuck Eddy has pointed this out, the way that so many country songs now sound like Bon Jovi songs. Mm-hmm. Of course, John Bon Jovi is now a country artist, but mm-hmm. it just makes sense. Uh, and Joshua Clover has pointed out that what happened to Southern rock is it just became country music. It doesn't even seem to me to be to have that much to do with the music because the songs are are often quite uh, quite you know melodic in a familiar sense, and the guitars are huge now. So I don't know. I love it. I love country. I'm interested in the way uh, that each pop music genre has sort of its prescribed subject matter. You know, and mm-hmm. and yes, there are artists who will break the mold completely, but it's pretty rare. With country, you talk about certain kinds of life situations in certain settings that are obviously totally different from those you talk about in rap. Uh, and I just think if I were one of those guys, I would feel so constrained, so straightjacketed by the themes, you know? Well, a lot of them make the tropes their their topics now. Yeah. Uh, you know, Brad Paisley's really good. I mean, his last album was, was just awful. But his... So uh, Accidental Racist you weren't a big fan of? No, that was uh, that was on Wheelhouse. Oh, yeah. and Wheelhouse has a couple great songs on it, but that wasn't his best. But then he made some record even, I think, this year that after the Accidental Racist one. Yeah, Accidental Racist is, a, is an embarrassment, but um, it was the more recent record that I was thinking of. But uh, he's very good at taking um, country music's tropes as well as the caricatures of country music that are widely accepted and turning them into uh songs to the to to a kind of wry acknowledgement of what's true and untrue about them mm-hmm. uh wheelhouse has this great song called those crazy christians which is you know one of the knocks against country music is that and, and against the south in general that it's got a bunch of crazy religious believers you know mm-hmm but he has this great line, and it's this song is sung from the point of view of someone who's converted, an unbeliever who is at the end of the song converted. And he has this great line where he says, those crazy Christians go and jump on some airplane and fly to Africa or Haiti, risk their lives in Jesus' name. And in uh, the country music, this is country music from his, his previous album, which is a great song. He upends a lot of the tropes by just, you know, bringing them into the light as tropes. He says, telling folks that Jesus is the answer can rub them wrong. It ain't hip to sing about tractors, trucks, little towns, and mama. <laughs> so much of, of popular music, uh, along with the cultural context that it's supposed to uh, adhere to or, or stay in that we're talking about, right. involves a kind of narration of one's own epic story. Right. And again, I would think you as a, a guy who's very um, suspicious of received tales, you know, right. might like bristle at the constant repetition of those stories in pop music. Um, oh, I don't think that the, that the um, I don't think there's anything, I, I think that the continuity and the persistence of tropes is a very strong thing in art. Uh, there's a difference between using and repeating a trope and using that trope generically, uh-huh. you know, and a lot of country music and a lot of rap and a lot of rock and roll does employ its tropes generically. But I've always been suspicious of the notion that there's something wrong with tradition, you know. I mean, I use quatrains, I rhyme, and I know people who will look at a poem in, in, in regular stanzas and just recoil 
but I think that's one of art's greatest um, resources is the weight of its tradition and the persistence of its of its tropes and its devices. The trick is just not to get lazy with them. And, you know, of course, a lot of poets, a lot of songwriters just go through the motions. But you can use the available equipment without going through the motions. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I, I guess the, the part that I was thinking might uh, cause problems for you, it certainly has for me, which is the pose that the singer often seems to take on, a kind of uh, inherited pose of being this or that kind of person because they're singing this or that kind of music. Uh, you know what I mean? They play a stock character so often. Yeah, but even playing a stock character can be, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with genre, right? Uh-huh. I mean, there are stock characters who are memorable and idiosyncratic, who are capable of leaving an impression. I think there's a difference between inhabiting a certain stock position, inhabiting that position in, in a way that doesn't do anything with it. Because, yeah, I mean, the pose in rap, the pose in country, you can find a lot of commonalities uh, among different artists. A lot of, um, you know, the, the, the bedrock of the pose is the same. But what you build on that bedrock is what makes the difference. Mm. I said we'd get back to Taylor Swift, and uh, I want to make good on my word here. You're a fan, and I know that you've been listening to her latest album, right? Um, especially one song. Yeah, blank spaces. I really, you know, Taylor's not, she's not the best at editing uh, or sequencing her albums. I really think that this, that blank space should have been the first song on the record and style should have been the second. Uh, As it is their second and third after Welcome to New York, which is not the best song to open with. And it's, it's not one of her better songs. Uh, Blank space though, just is, I don't think it's too soon to say that it is a timeless masterpiece. Um, let's hear a little bit of it and then, uh, we'll come back and I want to hear what grabs you about it so much. Okay, that was just a segment there from Taylor Swift's Blank Space uh, off her new album, 1989. Michael, help us uh, understand what's so great about that song. I love so much about that song. I love the way that she is getting more nuanced with her vocals, which have never been her strong suit. There's a, there's a, 
the line when she says um, in the chorus, got a long list of ex-lovers, they'll tell you I'm insane. I read a review of that line that said you can hear her uh, rolling her eyes. I, I, hear, I hear a much, much different affect in that line and in her singing. I don't know if the, the guy who wrote that had listened to the song as many times as I have. <laughs> but it sounds to me like a, a, a really naked, raw moment it's not a very ironic song. Uh, some of her songs are very ironic, but I don't hear as much irony in this one. And the way that that first iteration of They'll Tell You I'm Insane, she does this thing with her voice where it comes out almost like Irish or something. She says, I'm insane. O-I-M is how I've been phoneticizing it. And it just has, for no reason I can really discern, uh, a, a sort of hypnotic quality uh, for me. And, you know, this is in this poem, she rhymes um, torture and warn you. She's very good at, uh, at, at rhyming in general, but that rhyme kills me. And just the, I was skeptical when I heard she was making a record that was supposed to sound like 80s pop music, you know, and this doesn't always sound like 80s pop music, but this is her first album not to rely heavily on, on her own uh, or on guitar work. And it just works for me. The whole thing is just a perfect pop confection. I think it's the best album of the year, and I think Blank Space is the best song on it. What do you love about her as an artist overall? Oh, I love so much about her. I think um, what drew me to her in the first place is her melodicism uh, and the, the sharpness of her lyrics. But lately I've come to respect how she won't sit still. She's willing to flop uh, in order to push herself to, to do new things. Like, I think Welcome to New York is not a, a very successful experiment, where I, whereas I thought to Shake It Off was a lot better. You know, she just seems like she's not content to just be a pop star, you know. There's a lot of things I don't like about Taylor Swift. I don't like how much money she has. I don't like how sheltered she can seem. But she's an artist, and... It's, it's just weird for me to be like one of the most important artists of, in, my, in my life at the moment is someone who is constantly surrounded by screaming 12-year-old girls. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, you'll just have to deal with that one. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been to any of the shows. You know, my friends have gone. I might go to the MetLife show in July. I just don't know if I can handle that many 12-year-old <laughs> girls screaming in one place. Like, I basically don't ever want to be around a single 12-year-old girl, <laughs> whether she's screaming or not. So to be in an entire uh, stadium full of them is, is a daunting uh, proposition. Michael, I can't let you go without one more poem from your latest book, The Second Sex. This one is Political Poem for Michael Robbins to Sing. Oh, that's interesting. I never liked this one very much. Oh, really? Should we, should we change our choice? Yeah, I don't like that one. Can we read something else? Yeah, but before we uh, leave it behind completely, I got to say, it, it, it's uncanny to me how many like lines or poems you reference that are ones that have meant something to me. And the line in this one from Robert Lowell uh, that you play mm -hmm. with, uh, in fact, I love the way you play with it. Yeah, the that famous, nice. famous line from For the Union Dead, you know, a savage servility slides by on Greece. Right. Uh, he's describing cars and, and much more. Um just out of personal interest, I, I, I'm curious to know what you think of that line of Robert Lowell's and why you included it here. And we won't even read the poem, but uh, the line stands on its own in some ways. 
Oh, I think it's a great line. A savage servility slides by on Greece. You know, he's sort of describing the American temperament. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the horrible irony of having to describe it in that way at the great monument for the Union dead. There's There's a strange division in America between these noble ideals, which are sometimes quite real and admirable. And then there's just the, 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 this, this America, which has the greatest income inequality in the industrialized world, the largest prison population in the world, the country that uh, destroyed Indochina, slaughtering um, you know, a million people. And I think that for the Union debt is such a beautiful, uh, it so beautifully captures that dichotomy. But of course, the line goes, in my poem, a savage civility slides by on the way we are feeling, which is uh, a reference to the, the musical Greece. Greece is the way we are feeling, that great song by uh, Frankie Valli, a song I've always loved, and I still love it. I, I had a couple of bad reviews, not bad in the sense that they weren't positive, but just, you know, superficial. They sort of are only interested in mashing up things, like that's a clear instance of the mashup for the Union debt in Greece. And I do do that, but I mean, that's not what I think of as what's interesting in my poems, or not the most interesting thing. Well, is it uh, is it in some weird way fitting to end without even reading the poem that you don't particularly like that much, but talking about it anyway? Yes. <laughs> and there we will end. Michael, it has been great talking to you. Hey, thank you very much, Robert. It was a blast. Michael Robbins is the author of Alien vs. Predator and his new collection of poems, The Second Sex. And special thanks today for audio help to Sean Ramasvaram, who can now be heard telling almost anyone who will listen, I got $27. I'm homing in on your boo. It's all over now, Bobby Sue. I'm Robert Polly. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. We do it.